0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. There has been a lot of talk about the Murdaugh family out of South Carolina. Their saga has been covered in numerous true crime podcasts and on various documentaries, and I wanted to do a four-part series that broke down the family and all of the associated crimes and sketchy business practices that culminated in the family's epic fall from grace. So for this series, I will spend the four parts introducing the family and associated groups, the crimes related to the family, the numerous investigations, and the outcomes of those investigations. Now part of the driving factor for me to cover this case was a discussion I had with my parents when I drove them to our cabin last winter. My mom had said she didn't know what the big deal was with the Murdoch family and why everyone was talking about them. So I gave her a brief rundown of the case as I understood it, and it didn't take long for her to realize why this family made international news. There's a bunch of different ways I could have covered this case, but I decided to do it as close to chronological order as I can so the listeners can understand the entirety of this case. Now before I get into part one, I'll just let you know if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true Blue crime productions facebook page and more information can be found at the show's website at true crime productions.com and if you'd like to email me directly my email is true crime productions at gmail.com If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And I have had people reach out to me and and mention that they can't support me via Patreon due to financial difficulties, which I totally understand if you can please just let other people know about the podcast i know most people who listens listen to podcasts especially true crime ones know at least three or four other people that listen to true crime podcasts if you just let them know check out the podcast uh it's something that you like hopefully they like it as well and uh so that that to me matters more than the support via patreon so without any further ado let's dive into this episode of true blue crime The Low Country of southeastern South Carolina, the east coast of Georgia, and the northeast area of the Florida Peninsula is a unique ecological area unlike any other place in America. Geological events in history, as well as the influence of the Atlantic Ocean, create a biodiverse region of sea level islands, marshes, and swamps that have been inhabited by humans for thousands of years. American European colonists found the area highly suitable to growing African rice and turned to the evils of the slave trade to acquire West African slaves that were knowledgeable about the agricultural requirements for growing the crop. Charleston, South Carolina became the headquarters for the importation and sale of West African slaves that knew how to farm the land, plant, grow, and cultivate the African rice. The rice fields themselves were often large expanses of waterlogged and bug-infested fields that were purchased by wealthy landowners to be used for cultivation. The slaves often lived in small shacks near the rice fields, often establishing small villages. Their owners would not visit often due to the fields being hot spots for diseases such as malaria and yellow fever. The slaves, having lived for generations facing similar diseases in Africa, were better suited to survive in these conditions, and while life would have been difficult and their conditions inhumane, their spirit could not be broken. When Union troops moved into the region during the Civil War, the slave owners had already fled to areas further inland, and the troops emancipated these slaves. They had developed a culture that still exists today, which is known as Gullah. The culture has its own Creole, language, art, religious views, and architecture. After hurricanes and other acts destroyed much of their rice fields, their original lands were slowly sold off over 150 years to resort developers and private entities that would turn them into hunting grounds for various animals. Thankfully, in 2006, the US Congress awarded $10 million to the Gullah people to preserve their culture and historical landmarks in the region. Less than 10 years later, a crime would be committed in the area that many now see as the first of many dominoes to fall exposing a rich and powerful lawyer and his sons as cold-blooded killers and fraudsters in a story almost too vile to believe. This is the story of the Murdaugh family of the lowlands of South Carolina. To properly cover the story, we need to go back over 100 years to 1910. A man named Randolph Murdaugh Sr. having attended University of South Carolina Law School, graduated and opened his own law firm in Hampton, South Carolina. He would marry in 1914 and the couple would have two sons, Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. and John Johnny Murdoch. He also ran a local newspaper called the Hampton County Herald. In 1920, Randolph Sr. was elected to the seat of circuit solicitor for the five-county lowland area known as the 14th Judicial District of South Carolina. He essentially became the prosecuting attorney for the area while running his own defense law firm representing both sides of the law and controlling the local daily newspaper. Operating at the head of all of his operations, Randolph Sr. would serve in his position as the five-county prosecutor for 20 years until his untimely death when the car he was driving was hit by a freight train in 1940. This accident would come under suspicion for many reasons, but the end result was the first of many lawsuits between the Murdaugh Law Office and the Railroad Company. This first lawsuit was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Randolph, Sr.'s two sons took two very different paths. Gianni joined the U.S. Army during World War II and served as a paratrooper. He returned from the war as the highest decorated veteran in all of Hampton County. During his service, he was awarded a Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, and two Purple Hearts. Avoiding the politics of office, he chose the life of a farmer when he returned home from Europe. Randolph Jr., or also known as Buster, followed in his father's footsteps. At age 25, having graduated law school, he took over the prestigious duties from his father. As both a defense lawyer and a prosecutor, he was known for his dramatics in the courtroom and his shrewd application of the law to his benefit. He towed the line of legality on several occasions, and in 1956, he was indicted on federal charges for giving sensitive information to a friend to avoid being caught with a moonshine still during a bootlegging operation. However, he was acquitted of these charges. In the 47 years that he held the elected position, he only had to run two campaigns. All the other elections during his tenure were unopposed. He married his wife, Gladys, and together they would have son, one son named Randolph, Randy Murdaugh III. Randy Murdaugh also followed in his father's footsteps and took over as the five-county solicitor when his father retired in 1986. He would serve in this position until his retirement in 2006, bringing about an end to an 86-year reign by the Murdaugh family as prosecutors for the five-county district. Randy and his wife had four children. Daughter Lynn was born in 1963, His oldest son, Randolph Randy Murdaugh IV, was born in 1966, Richard Alexander Alex Murdaugh was born in 1968, and John Marvin Murdaugh was born in 1970. While Lynn and John did not follow the family lineage of becoming lawyers, Randy IV and Alex did. For ease in following this family lineage, we'll focus mainly on Randy IV and Alex from this generation from now on. Randy IV graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School, just as many male ancestors had done before. Once he passed his exams, he joined the family law firm. In practice since 1910, the law firm had run alongside the prosecution duties of the family for 100 years. Alex Murdaugh also joined the firm upon his graduation from the University of South Carolina Law School. Together, the brothers worked with their father and grandfather in the law firm now known as Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltzroth, and Dietrich, PA, or PMPED for short, as we refer to it from now on. The law firm specialized in personal injury litigation, not surprisingly, in cases involving railroad accidents. While always a successful practice, the company made a fortune in the early 2000s, thanks to a change in South Carolina law that allowed lawsuits to be tried in any county in which an out-of-state company owns or conducts business. In the cases of railroads, this means that any time freight for a company arrived via railroad, the company and the railroad opened themselves up to a potential lawsuit in that county, no matter where the injury occurred. As a result, lawyers from PMPED, the Murdaugh Law Firm, could file suit in any county of their choice, essentially allowing them to pick the judge and court that they felt would give them the best chance of winning. The area of the lowlands actually became known as third worst judicial hellhole for defendants in America. This was due to the adverse conditions for lawyers defending their corporate and or insurance clients by courts in the area. The railroads continued to be a prime target for PMPED and their lush offices were referred to as the house that CSX Railroad built. The negative effects of this included companies not wanting to do business in the five county area, and lobbyists effectively fought to change this law, which occurred in 2005. Alex Murdaugh married Margaret Maggie Brandstetter, and together they had two sons Richard Alexander Murdaugh Jr., who would be referred to as Buster, and Paul Terry Murdaugh, referred to as Paul. Buster Murdaugh was born April 11th and attended, shockingly, the University of South Carolina Law School, but it was reported he was kicked out in 2019 for plagiarism. He still managed to become a lawyer and continues to support his father despite all that we are about to learn. Paul Murdaugh was born April 14, 1999 and was known to be a troublemaker and a problem child. It would be an investigation into his involvement in a widely publicized boating accident, that would propel the family saga to front-page news across the country. But before we dive into the crimes related to this saga, let's quick recap the main players of the story. And I wanted to do this just because you're getting hit with a lot of information and a lot of these names are going to be sounding the same. So I have kind of a real quick rundown here. The foundation for this family was built by Randolph Senior in the early 1900s. His suspicious death led to the long-reigning Randolph Buster II, running most of the legal processes for the county for 46 years. But while those two built the foundation, most of this story is going to revolve around Randy Murdaugh III, and we will refer to him as Randy from now on, his son Alex Murda, who we will refer to as Alex, and Alex's wife Maggie and his sons Paul and Buster. Hopefully that makes sense to everyone and we've whittled the family tree down to the five main players. Other family members and many friends will come in and out of the story, but we will focus on major crimes and events that pertain to these five members for the remainder of this multi-part series. We start our crime saga on July 8, 2015, with a case that intrigued me well before the Murdoch saga hit front page news. I heard this case covered on a podcast sometime around 2019 at least that's when i heard it i don't recall if this was a podcast that it recorded years prior but i I just remember hearing this case well before the murda saga was out there and i had so many questions about the investigation and how it was handled but when it was tied into the murda saga many of those questions but not all of them were answered now, every effort will be made to cover all the deaths in this saga as evenly and fairly as possible. Thanks to the massive interest in these crimes, there is a lot of information available, and I'll do my best to stick to the relevant facts and theories for this case. And when I mean there's a lot of information available, uh, granted I'm covering several different crimes, but it's not uncommon for me to find five or six good articles covering a true crime story, and I'll leave those source materials uh my my credits to these in my uh, research documents that i do and in the, the writing that i do for this and oftentimes i'll have five or six sources i think in all for this four-part series i probably had somewhere between 30 and 40 different sources that i used it's just because there is so much information out there and i was actually surprised for the most part Almost all of the information matched up between these sources, so I'm fairly confident that what I'm reporting to you guys is as close to the truth as possible. But let's get back to July 8, 2015. At 3.57 a.m., the body of a 19-year-old nursing student named Stephen Smith was found lying in the middle of a road in Hampton County. A deputy with the Hampton County Sheriff's Office named Michael Bridges is first to arrive on scene at 4.07 a.m over an hour later two highway patrol officers from the south carolina highway patrol are dispatched to the scene and they notify their supervisors of the fatal incident they describe the incident as a possible fatal hit and run accident but the only injuries they see are to the head of the victim and this is not uncommon in minnesota Most of the accident reconstruction for fatal or serious accidents is going to be done by the Highway Patrol. They have the training and the officers because they deal with a lot of high speed fatal style crashes on the highways and interstates. So even when we had a pedestrian, either fatal or near fatal, on a city street, we would often call them out because, again, they have the right training equipment to do the reconstruction for these accidents. And as individual police officers, even as a crime scene technician, I didn't have the full training and capabilities I needed to to properly investigate uh, these accidents. So it's not uncommon that agencies such as a sheriff's office or a police department is going to contact highway patrol when they are notified of, or, or when they come across, I should say, this fatal style accident or somebody in the roadway that they believe could be a a hit and run fatal accident. But by 6 a.m. investigators on scene have changed their mind and believe Stephen was killed by a gunshot to the head. And the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, which we will call SLED, was notified of the possible homicide. And again, SLED is going to be that state level uh, criminal investigation. We've talked about it in different cases. In wisconsin i think we referred to him as the department of criminal investigation or something along those lines in minnesota it's the bureau of criminal apprehension that is the state police um, different organizations like or different states like massachusetts actually have a state police that's called the massachusetts state police but it's one of those broad-reaching uh, they can investigate crimes anywhere in the state and they usually investigate homicides high-level crimes and so they're going to be called out to the scene because it's unlikely that this hampton county sheriff's office deals with too many homicides and just because you only get one chance to investigate a homicide a lot of these departments are going to look for help to make sure it gets done correctly And originally, a traffic accident reconstruction team known as MAIT, M-A-I-T, and this is something about like multi-agency investigation team, something along those lines, was dispatched to the scene, but they were canceled around this time as investigators believed it was a homicide. Because a homicide is going to be investigated as a criminal act that's absent anything to do with vehicles or the roadway, so they don't need this accident reconstruction team there's no and we'll get into it but there's no sign that an accident occurred they just have a person with head injuries which they believe is going to be a gunshot wound so they think either killed while walking down the middle of the road or killed and dumped in the middle of the road either way it doesn't have to do with a vehicular accident so they're going to investigate as a homicide by six twelve a.m sled is on scene and speaks with the hampton county coroner and they agree the scene is a homicide the coroner even identifies a gunshot entry wound in the side of Steven's head and confirms on scene that, that the death is a homicide. A walk of the crime scene reveals no telltale signs of a hit and run. And it doesn't matter if another vehicle is hit, an animal is hit, or a person is hit. Almost every accident scene is going to have some type of skid marks because the natural reaction before, during, or after the impact is for the driver to hit the brakes and hit the brakes hard, which is going to leave some form of skid marks on the roadway. Also, it's very rare for any type of collision to occur again with another vehicle, a a structure, an animal or a person, where there isn't debris from the vehicle left behind. Vehicles are mostly made of plastic nowadays, at least the exterior of the body is it's very lightweight and it's very breakable and there's reasons for that and so when it impacts something at speed even if the object itself doesn't have a lot of weight or mass to it there's still gonna be debris left behind so even if as they're gonna later say they believe that Stevens hit with a side view mirror from a vehicle the impact should still shatter the glass of the mirror it should remove the entire side view mirror from the vehicle something all along those lines and they're seeing nothing to indicate that any type of collision occurred two hours later at 8 15 a.m the crime scene is under full investigation rough sketches are done that show the victim was in the exact middle of the road and rough sketches are something that officers do when they get to a scene because scenes can change Anything can happen that can disrupt your scene. So often, what police officers are trained to do is just to take out a, the small notebook they carry to write information down and just do a real rough hand sketch. And it's not going to be to scale, measurements aren't going to be accurate. However, you're going to get some rough measurements, maybe from a telephone pole or an electrical pole or something that's pretty substantial and not moving to places like the body itself, or if there was a vehicle, to the vehicle just so you have some idea somewhere down the road of of where things were at the time that you arrived at the scene. And this sketch is important because when they say middle of the road, sometimes people think the middle of a lane, or some people could think if the feet are on the the fog line, the white line on the outside of the road, and, and they're laying into the middle of the lane, then they're in the middle of the road. But this rough sketch showed Stephen's body was pretty much between the dividing lines of this two-way, two-lane road. So he is exactly in the middle of this road. And SLED agents finished their investigation about 9.18 a.m. They believe the victim has a single gunshot wound to the head and some minor injuries to his left arm and hand. His right arm and hand was covered in blood, so investigators could not tell if he had any injuries on that side. No fired cartridge cases were found, and a search of Steven revealed a car key in his pocket. At 9.20, Steven's vehicle was found three miles away. Investigators used his keys to get in the vehicle, but it appeared to have run out of gas and wouldn't start. The fuel cover was open, and the gas cap was hanging from the car and the only item in the vehicle was Steven's wallet. 20 minutes later, the car is left on the side of the road, and information is relayed from SLED and HCSO that the Highway Patrol does not need to attend the autopsy. This is likely to, due to them believing 100% that this was not a vehicular involved event and was purely a homicide. At 10.30 am, Steven's parents, Joel and Sandy Smith, are notified of their son's death. Now this is where the story takes a severe and unexpected turn. Stephen's autopsy was conducted at 12.30pm, roughly 9 hours after he was found. The pathologist would put in her findings that the head wound was not a gunshot wound, but the result of blunt force trauma and he had multiple skull fractures. She would also find that he had cuts and abrasions on his arm and hands and blood in his airways. She would rule his death as a result of a vehicular crash in which he was a pedestrian that was struck by a vehicle. By 4.15 p.m., news of this had reached the Highway Patrol, who were informed they would be back in charge of the investigation as it was now considered a roadway incident. Highway Patrol tried to get more information as to why it was being considered a hit and run, and the only information was they got the head wound wasn't a gunshot and he was found in the roadway. The highway patrol spends the next few hours trying to restart a crash investigation to include stopping steven's body from being treated at the funeral home he had been transported to after the autopsy and this is pretty standard procedure is after an autopsy the body is released from the coroner to the family and the family is going to then have the body transported to a funeral home to be uh, prepped for the eventual funeral however in this case The highway patrol especially this accident investigation team they haven't even been on scene to see the accident scene they haven't been to actually see steven's body the condition the injuries the clothing because there's certain telltale signs of a hit and run accident that you're going to see in most cases and we'll get to one of the signs that's that's pretty clear that it probably was not a hit and run but again they've got to now start this investigation over 12 hours after his body has been found and moved and an autopsy has been done the road's been reopened all that kind of stuff so now the sergeant in charge of the highway patrol investigation tried to get more information from the hampton county sheriff's office or sheriff himself but they would not return his calls so he sent a a patrol officer to the scene of the crash to look for debris again and again none was found and he ordered an officer to sit at the scene of the crash between 2 and 5 a.m the next morning to ascertain the traffic level and watch for any suspect vehicles and this is actually a really smart part of the investigation because this is a very rural and not very heavily traveled section of the county to begin with so you now have to have the belief that steven's car runs out of gas in the middle of the night he's somehow walking in the middle of the road and that somehow traffic at that time comes through and hits him and now just in case you have some worker getting off of a third shift or somebody who you know constantly drives maybe even leaving really early in the morning for a shift that drives that route regularly, if you see any vehicles on that road, you could stop them just to talk to them, see if they saw the, the car broken down with no gas, if they saw Steven in the car at that time. You could also look for damage to a car. If a car comes through that area around 3 o'clock in the morning, and has damage to a headlight or a side view mirror or anything like that, you could maybe develop a suspect vehicle as a result of that. So this is a really smart move, but it's, I think it's also going to be to build a case against the ruling that this was a hit and run accident because if they sit there for three hours and no car comes through or one vehicle comes through and it's you know somebody that normally doesn't travel that road, it's gonna be a hard sell to say that, that he was hit by a vehicle. On the following morning, the Highway Patrol meets with the crash reconstruction team at the funeral home. They take photos of Stephen and his clothing, and they find no telltale signs of a hit and run other than the head wound and some road rash to his arms. They also talk to Stephen's family, who strongly reject the idea that Stephen would have been walking in the middle of the road, as they described him as skittish. And this is where that sketch comes back in, because if he's like most people that aren't... (laughs) very daring when it comes to roads and cars and all that kind of stuff if he's walking away from his car that's run out of gas the chances that he's hit and somehow ends up in the exact middle of the road seems pretty unlikely it's more likely if he was walking he'd be walking along the side of the road and if he was struck he probably would actually ended up in the shoulder or if there was a ditch or an area off to the side of the road it's more likely his body would have been thrown in that direction to end up in the middle of the road where he was according to the sketch it just doesn't match up with what his behaviors were or anything along those lines and I know we'll probably get to it here at some point but I'll mention it here because it makes more sense another thing in in hit and run accidents when people are walking and this is gonna be somewhat morbid, but when they get hit, a lot of the times their shoes come off. And it's just because of the force of the impact kind of throw, literally throws the body out of the shoes. Now, obviously, if their shoes are on really tight or they're wearing boots that are tied up high, it's not as likely. But if somebody's in flip-flops or Crocs, or in this case, Steven's shoes were said to be tied very, very loosely on his feet, The chance of getting hit by a 3,000-plus-pound vehicle moving at speed and your shoes staying on you are pretty rare, and his shoes were on him when he was found. So, again, there's a lot of things other than the fact he's found in the roadway that are telling investigators that this is not a traffic accident. A visitation was held for Stephen on July 11th, and his parents decided to do an open casket. And this was despite his gory head wound and this was because they refused to believe the hit and run theory and wanted people to see what someone had done to their son on july 14th the first of what would be three death certificates are issued for steven the hampton county coroner's office states Stephen died of blunt force trauma and this original death certificate says that they believe he was struck by a side view mirror of a passing vehicle likely a truck that caused his death, but once again, no debris from a mirror was found at the scene. Meanwhile investigators were following up on several leads regarding Stephen's behavior leading up to his death. His parents said he was acting strangely, staying out later than normal, and he had been extra secretive. His mother would say that after his death, people would approach her and ask her if she knew that the Murdaugh boys were involved in Stephen's death, but she mostly shook this off as small-town gossip. Tension between the pathologist and investigators continued to grow over the weeks following the accident. On July 22nd, an investigator with the accident investigation team went to speak with the original pathologist. According to his report, she was extremely negative and abrasive with him and called him a liar for saying he had discussed the matter with a coroner. He had discussed the issue and had grounds to be there, so the investigator saw her response as very hostile. He asked her again why she ruled it a vehicular accident, despite there being no signs of a vehicle strike, and she said it was because he was found on the road and it was up to the investigators to find evidence to support the theory. The tension worsened over the next month, and the pathologist was eventually fired for her attitude towards the case. She then said she would change her report to read however the coroner wanted it to read. While all the issues with the investigation were going on, Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, received a call on the day of his death from Randy Murdaugh, the fourth, offering to represent Sandy for free in any legal proceedings. Sandy found this strange, as the families had no pre-existing connections or friendship. From there, the Murdaugh name was brought up over 40 times during the investigation by various people. The most common rumor was that Buster Murdaugh, a classmate of Stephen had a close friendship or even a possible romantic relationship with Stephen, who was openly gay. A year after the death of her son, Sandy Smith wrote a letter to the FBI begging them to get involved in the case. She felt there was too much political power in play with certain members of the Hampton area and that power was getting in the way of getting answers about her son's death. She would have to wait five years until there was evidence to point to a connection between the Murdos and Stephen's murder. But for now, we will stay in 2016. So, here's some final thoughts on the Stephen Smith case. Despite being a quiet guy, he was well known due to his openly gay sexuality in what is otherwise a pretty conservative southern area. So, I didn't bring it up early on in this discussion because I really wanted to get through the story, but this is a big part of the story much like when we've talked about other cases where gay men appear to have been targeted for their homosexuality while there are a lot of rumors i didn't want to report on the rumors because there's actually going to be continued investigation into this and even even as of 2023 and this case occurred in 2015 but even even as of 2023 this case is still being investigated It has been changed to a homicide, and I know that's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I wanted people to kind of keep that in mind that this is one of those cases where, as I mentioned early on, things don't make sense. When the pathologist said it was up to the crash investigators to find evidence to support the hit-and-run theory, that's about as far from the truth as possible. As police officers or pathologists or medical examiners you look to the evidence itself to try to develop a theory you don't develop a theory and then try to find evidence that only supports your theory so yes the body was found in a road in a roadway but that does not make it a vehicular related event and to try to find evidence which they did to support that the lack of evidence to support that should cause an immediate stop to that theory and say, well, can we find evidence that it's something else? And I didn't get into it in the story, but the sergeant that was investigating with the accident investigation team, I think asked the pathologist something along the lines of could the injury you're seeing have occurred from somebody getting hit with a baseball bat? And her response was something like, why do you have a baseball bat as evidence? And he said, no, I'm just asking a question, which made me think there, there, there was a couple thoughts. One, was he walking down the road and he was assaulted and then he happened to you know, collapse in the middle of the roadway after this assault? Or another option, was he being chased down by a vehicle And somebody swung something like a baseball bat out of the vehicle and hit him, you know, with the vehicle or the truck traveling at speed. I know there's a lot of mailboxes in rural areas that teenagers will do that. They'll drive around with a baseball bat and swing the baseball bat and hit the mailbox. And I actually saw a meme the other day on the internet where somebody had like had two mailboxes and the first one or maybe it was three mailboxes, and the two outer ones were both just covered in concrete in the middle, and you didn't know that with the mailbox closed, and then the middle one was the actual mailbox. So, and there was a, a dent on one of the concrete ones that looked as if somebody had driven by at speed and hit it with a baseball bat. It was something along the lines of, can you imagine the numb feeling you would have in your hands for weeks after hitting this mailbox with a baseball bat? So. We know that type of behavior goes on, but now you've got this guy who's openly gay and he drove a very noticeable car. I think his mom called it a banana car or something like that. So it must've been some type of bright yellow. Everybody this is a small town knows that Steven drives this car. So it wouldn't take too much to think of a theory that is more along the lines of Steven runs out of gas and is walking away from his car and a truckload of kids up to no good recognizes his vehicle, sees him walking down the road, it's isolated, it's dark, and they decide they're going to hit this kid with a baseball bat, not realizing that a truck traveling at 40, 50 miles an hour and that swing of that bat impacting uh, you know, somebody standing there is fatal. So it's it's very likely that that's more of a, the scenario of what happened. But the way the investigation was handled was so backwards from the beginning that it really did raise a lot of red flags before they even involved the Murdoch's. But now you add in the fact that Buster and Stephen did attend school together, so they knew each other. And Stephen served as the football team's trainer due to his interest in medicine. If I think I mentioned in the beginning he was a nursing student at this time. So he had worked kind of as a volunteer student trainer on the football team, and Buster had been on the football team, and most of his buddies that he would have been out with that evening were on the football team. And there was rumors around town that Buster and his friends had gone to a late baseball game that night and may have been out driving around and drinking And had come across steven's car as it ran out of gas and there are additional rumors that steven may have called buster for help because he didn't want to walk on the road and again this starts to go down a, a variety of different whether you want to call them conspiracy theories or just rumor gossip mill stuff but it it all fits within more of a realm of possibility than him getting hit is that there's potential for the fact that Steven may have called Buster whether they were friends whether there was a romantic situation going on whatever it might have been may have called Steven for help Steven was out but he was with his buddies and whether at first they were going to help him or whether some bad decisions were made, whatever it might be. Again, most people believe there's, there's more of a likelihood that Stephen ran into some type of foul play, whether or not the Murdochs are involved, but ran into some type of foul play as he was walking home that day or that evening. And it had nothing to do with, with an accident, hit and run type of a situation. And we talked about it a little before, but the condition of the body to include Stephen's shoes being loosely tied but still on his feet did not point to that hit-and-run high-impact event of a vehicle striking him. I understand where the coroner is coming from when they said it could be like the side-view mirror, like a a, a semi-truck has big, wide, metal mirrors, and if one of those hits you at speed as you're walking along, I'm sure there's a chance for a fatal accident, but again... I just the position of the body, where he would have had to be in the middle of the road, getting struck like that. I just don't see that. I see it more likely that again, maybe he was trying to run from one side of the road to the other to ev- evade something, to get away from somebody. And I'm with the investigators' feeling; it was more likely he was struck with an object like a baseball bat. And as I talked about before, this case is still under investigation. And we'll talk about it getting reopened at some point, too. Uh, Basically, in the storyline at this point, we're in 2016. And that's when Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, sent the letter to the FBI saying, can you please investigate this? Because she just doesn't trust local law enforcement. Because I didn't really break it down when I talked about the building of this uh, prosecution slash defense law practice, but to me, I don't understand how it couldn't have been a conflict of issue. Or con- <laughs> to me, I don't understand how it could have been allowed to have your main prosecuting attorney for all of these five counties. And a prosecuting attorney is the same thing that you often hear district attorneys, or so, in some places, they're county attorneys in for cities they're prosecuting attorneys now these are attorneys that sometimes do work at private practices but they just happen to bill cities or the county or whatever it might be for prosecution duties because just like they can defend somebody they can also prosecute them but when you have somebody who is in charge of all these five counties and then they also have they're defending murder cases, they're defending all this kind of stuff, but they're also prosecuting murder cases and rape cases. To me, it's a huge conflict of interest. And to have this go on for 86 years, it just... I don't blame Stephen's mother for not trusting the sheriff's office, especially if rumors are that a Murdaugh might be involved in it. And you know that... They have a lot of power and influence in this county and across the other five counties they have very close working relationship with law enforcement they know the sheriff they know all the police officers in the area so again I, i don't blame her but we're gonna leave it at that for part one i just really wanted to cover the foundation where this family came from how they came to be so prominent in this lowland area of south carolina you know for over a 100 years they've had this law practice that has done really really well it's made them a lot of money and they've you know used that money and power and influence to kind of establish themselves as kind of a, a almost a royalty in this area and i know at this point that the 2015 case with stephen smith doesn't have a ton of tie-in to the Murdoch's, Um but it chronologically it's worth mentioning so that when we talk about a few things down the road this is going to make sense and I again I think whether or not the Murda's are involved it's a case that's worth getting the information out there uh, because you know Stephen Smith no matter what happened didn't de- deserve to die and his story deserves to be told but we will dive in the next part. We'll get to, we'll jump to 2018 and the suspicious death of the family's housekeeper and a couple and another crime that kind of propels the story to the front page. So that's it for today. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, especially the next three for this part. Uh, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at truecrop current productions so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye